You are listening to the Jason Killingsworth Podcast. Let's go. This is your host, Jason Killingsworth. I've spent nearly two decades studying creativity, first as a music and film journalist, which gave me access to world-renowned musicians, actors, and filmmakers, and then later as a video game journalist, where I explored the fascinating marriage of art, technology, and interactive storytelling. This podcast is all about curiosity, risk, self-expression, play, and the tension every artist and thinker navigates between order and the chaotic potential of the unknown. If you find these subjects equally rich, then you have come to the right place. Today's guest is Edmund McMillan, the prolific game designer behind such beloved and influential titles as Super Meat Boy and The Binding of Isaac, the latter of which we discuss in great detail during our conversation today his obsession with monsters and the grotesque and weird occultic imagery has captivated my imagination a thousand times over. His games prove that you can weave harrowingly personal themes into your work and still reach a substantial audience. And now I bring you Edmund McMillan. got Edmund McMillan on the line. Uh, Edmund, so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem. I, I want to jump back to 2010. I was at the Game Developers Conference and I dropped by the uh, IGF Pavilion uh, to see what indie games were, were on the way. And and it was the first I'd actually heard of, uh, of Super Meat Boy. But I, but I picked up a promotional comic that that you did to kind of go along with the game. And, and as I was getting ready for this interview, I, I pulled it back out to, to have a read. And, and there was this history of Meat Boy, uh, which included this really ar- arresting line uh, where you and uh, a friend named John fall in love, as you say, and then this, yeah. uh, this game Meat Boy is, is born. And then uh, you write, how can we exploit our new baby, they thought. So they cut him up, pushed him into a computer. Three days later, their meat boy was reborn. And that that image of this uh, this poor exploited child was, it, it kind of hit me as incredibly funny and then also incredibly sad and kind of relatable, uh, having, having grown up in a, in a quite uh, like high pressure controlling sort of religious home myself, um, and and I was wondering if if when you wrote that if there was a little bit of a cutting edge attached to it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> like Meat Boy was the best I could 
the best I could do it when it came to selling out. Like it was, I'm going to play by the rules and utilize what was most popular, but still was most personal. Like it, I can't, I can't work on projects that aren't personal in some way, or I just usually don't have the motivation to continue and I, I'm not as excited or invested. So, you know, I'm taking this, this, this flash game, you know, originally made it with John, um, McEntee and, uh, we made this flash game where I had these characters that were like, kind of like loosely based on me and my wife and, you know, hardships we've faced in our, in our relationship and, uh, you know, threw it together. And then that turned out to be my most popular flash game by far. It's like 12 million plays or something by the time we started working on super Meat boy. And in the past I'd, I hadn't worked on a game for more than, um, you know, a few months because it wasn't realistic for me to invest that much time because, the more time you spend, the, the more risk involved. And I didn't have the financial stability to do that. Um, so this was scary. And um, I had previously that year released quite a few flash games that made me more money than I had made in the past. So I had a slight cushion. I had like eight grand in savings, I think. And I thought, okay, if I like really live super cheap and Danielle keeps working, then I can probably, <laughs> I can probably get a good year, you know, I get a good year out of, yeah. And uh, it was stressful. Uh, and I was like, okay, well what, I don't want to gamble on some weird experimental thing. Cause at that time I was doing some weird shit. Like I was releasing really, really odd, very, you know, uh, borderline controversial games and, uh, doing some odd stuff. So I didn't want to, you know, take a risk on that. So I was like, okay, we'll just remake something that I, a formula that I, that I, that I knew, already worked, improve it greatly, expand on as much as possible and release that. And that was Meat Boy. But, you know, the fact of the matter was I was still like, I was playing, playing softball. You know, I I wasn't going to uh, invest, which I thought would be a year, which ended up being like about two years um, on a project that was kind of up in the air. Like I, I had already prototyped this. It had already done well. I knew I could improve it. It was super, super easy. Like making, making a platformer is the easiest game genre you could kind of pick it's it's super fun super easy it's easy to expand on and just jumped in and did it and um but that's what it was i mean it's that's what that comic's about like i i um i knew what i was doing and i knew i mean it's kind of the name of the game like you you put a price tag on art and you have you have no you have to exploit it like it's this is the way it works like you you're you're selling yourself yeah, but was that something that you struggled with balancing the the art and then just the commercial realities of of selling that thing that that you love? Was that ever something that that gave you any pause? Um, the the only aspect of it that really had any impact on me is it's it's more um, the idea of somebody reviewing harshly reviewing something that's personal hurts. It, it could hurt really bad. Um, and, um, but I've become pretty callous to criticism over the years. Like I threw myself into the wolves den, uh, we call it the internet and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty harsh and, um, pretty honest, you know, like you, you, you learn fast and you learn, I mean, I'm my harshest critic. Like I no, no, I've never read something that hurt me more than my own personal thoughts of my work. So, um, 
but it, it does sting a little. And when you put something out there, like um, I assume you saw Indie Game the movie, and there was a part in Indie Game the movie where I'm talking about Meat Boy and the kind of meaning behind it, but I feel like I'm talking in code, and I feel like they're not, you know, picking up on what I'm laying down. And then they framed it in the movie in a way that made me feel so naked, like it made me feel like I was reading my high school poems. You know what I mean? Like it was borderline embarrassing, but it it was at least sincere enough for me to be okay with. You know, it was. And that's kind of how it feels like I, I, I want to say something, um, I want to say something personal and I want to say something impactful, but I mostly want to say it to myself and I, and I kind of want to obfuscate what I'm saying enough for people to not completely grasp my personal take on whatever I'm exploring. And why do you do, um, why, why do you want to abstract it in that way for safety or what's the, yeah, it's definitely a safety thing. Like I, because number one, it seems pompous. Like I, I don't expect anybody to give a shit about the stuff that I've been through. Like it's, if I, if I really wanted to talk about me, um, and my personal experience, I just write, you know, some sort of autobiographical comic or something like it. It just seems like it's too personal to completely relate to. And if I blur it a little bit more, um, kind of like a song, like, I mean, that's how, that's how I kind of write. Like I, I'm hugely inspired by music and songwriting is just such a perfectly abstract art form, um, with so much emotion behind it. And, And you can say so much without without saying so much, like you, you set a tone and you, you put a few words out there that have meaning to you, but you know, you can only say so much. You can't write a book and a song, you know what I mean? Like you, 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 you give a feeling and, uh, to the person writing the song, I'm positive. It's a hugely personal thing that, that means something so, so strongly to them, but to everybody else, they pick and they pick the words. They, they have a feeling that they're experiencing when they're, when they're listening to the song and it's, blurry enough unless it's not as it's not specific enough for somebody to be like oh well that's about this person's thing it's like oh well that feels like the time you know someone broke up with me or that feels like the time where you know i felt like shit you know that sort of stuff um or a triumphant feeling or anything like that it's a non-specific it's more generalized feeling and and i think that that helps um you know with that sort of stuff too but you know there is a secondary protective aspect of it where i feel like i don't i don't need to go like it took me, took me years to kind of talk about, and I'm still edging into it now, like how personal the meat boy story is to me and the reasons why. And, um, I'm okay with it now, but it's just like you, once you get a far enough away from it, you can kind of talk about it more. And like, even like Isaac stuff and especially the end is nice stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not anywhere close to like being able to talk about what really is going on there and what it means to me. Yeah. Um, but eventually I'll get there and, you know, you kind of learn as you go. Like you learn through other people's interpretations of what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, somebody listening to this podcast who's, you know, maybe they don't play video games, but they see uh, a video on YouTube of Super Meat Boy and he's he's running around jumping over these you know spinning saws and he's, you know, maybe to them it looks like this kind of less, this sort of silly, silly fun thing, and but but then you look a bit closer and you and you realize that there's this this boy who 
is a boy, first of all, who's, so there's this implication that they're younger, they're not as, what like, hardened to the world, they don't have this protective skin around them to insulate them from the realities of the world, and, and is leaving this trail of blood along the ground uh, behind him, and sort of splashing up against walls, and 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 so all of a sudden it starts to feels not sinister but yeah so much more vulnerable uh, than you might get just at a like a snapshot level. Yeah, I mean, and, and it usually comes off to people as you know this is strange and you know this is silly and that's totally fine. I mean, I, I'm that you know no one needs to get anything more than that out of it. But um, I like to think that <clears throat> that kind of just basic allegory to that exposed feeling and just, just the pieces I, I lay down the pieces of the puzzle. That's, that's kind of what I try to do when doing anything, you know, you've got, you've got a boy with no skin. You've got a girl who's made of bandages and you've got a, an unborn fetus that kind of has her captive and you're constantly trying to save her. And, you know, it's, it's just you just have those pieces and that's it, it reads as weird to everybody. But if you think about it more, there's, of course, more thought that's going into this. And, um, you know, I just I just need it to matter to me for me to be motivated enough to work on it. And in order to do that, I need to make it personal. And yeah, I mean, and me, the, the Meat Boy story was very personal. It's just, it's funny to say that sort of stuff too. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, <laughs> would hear this and be like, well, <laughs> I don't see it. Like you're just, it's just a platformer and you're just running around jumping on stuff. And, uh, and that's true. But like for me, it, you know, there's, it, it holds a lot more weight than something silly. And, uh, and I tend to try to, I guess like any comedian, like I, I try to take, take, some sort of tragic experience and, you know, make light of it and make it funny. So it's more easily digestible. It's, I, I remember always joking around with, uh, with the binding of Isaac stuff where people will be like, you know, how did you, uh, how did you get away with such incredibly dark themes? Because if you, if you write down the story of, of Isaac and, or you just try to just explain how the game plays and, and what you're seeing and what you're experiencing, you write it on paper, um, and you have somebody read it, it seems like horrible, like, why would anybody want to play such an awful experience? Right. And then my excuse was like, okay, well, I have this story that I want to explore and it's super awful. And like, how do I, how do I make it fun? I know I'll make the character's eyes really big. <laughs> like you just, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's easy. Like it's, it's, you just make, you take a cartoon and you make the character's eyes really big. Um, you make it look more like a baby, you know, and, and you can get away with so much more and you can, people who wouldn't normally want to experience something so weird and dark would be more okay with it because it's still more, it's more accessible and you feel more for the character and um, it's just feels like a joke. You know, it's, it's the, the, the tragic joke. Would a, would a character like Meat Boy pop up in your, your own ske- sketchbook or would those characters appear before you ever feel like this is going to 
make a video game cameo? Oh uh, yeah, I mean for the most part, like a lot of the characters that I have in um, in my games have been sketched out years, years, years ago. Like Meat Boy was a sketch, uh, one of many different weird uh, kind of flawed heroes that I, I had in a sketchbook, um, and he was called the Meat Ninja. He looked just like how he does now, except he had a ninja hood on and the rest of his body was just meat and you could see his bones and stuff. So it was more clearly, uh, originally you could see Meat Boy's rib cage. It was more clear like that. He just was a skinless person. Um, um, but it didn't, it didn't read well. Like it, it just didn't look as, as good as just a red cube. So I took it off, but yeah, I sketched it down. I, I and Dr. Fetus was there. His name was Mr. Fetus. And, a shitload of other characters. The Duke of Flies from from Isaac was a really, really, really early, like early 2000s sketch that I wanted to fit into something and I could just never find the time to do it. And he was kind of like a a retelling of an older character that I had called Weltling, which was this dead bird full of maggots that was kind of reanimated because it, it was moving around and stuff. It looked animated because it was just riddled with with uh, with maggots that were you know, mo- mo- animating it. And I, and I wanted to expand on that. So I, you know, the next evolution is fly. So when I was young, uh, the idea of, of absorbing ugly art or like ugly images was, was so off limits. It was, it was so forbidden because there was this Bible verse, think on things that are good and lovely and, you know, whatever it was, but, I think as I started to kind of push outside of that Christian upbringing, there was like this appetite, like to see something twisted, like to see something ugly and realize that it, it was, it wasn't dangerous. Like yeah. it was just interesting. And, and, and then even beyond that, it like had its own weird beauty because it was unique and it kind of was its own thing. And and so like that was something that just radiated off of your work, and wanted to hear you talk a bit about. It. Oh yeah, I mean that's we probably experienced very similar upbringings. You grow up in a religious household, and you're told that certain things are off limits, and the first thing you think is why, and you start to question the whole like, you know, there's a reason in the Bible why there's this tree of knowledge that you're not supposed to eat from, and like that's what it is. It's like this low hanging fruit that wait, why? Like, why am I not supposed to even question this? Like, what makes something bad? It's like religion gives so much power to weird, dark things. And um, you want to kind of see why. Like, why can I watch these movies? Like, why can't I say these words? Like, when I was little, I used to record myself swearing to try to figure out, and I'd listen to it, to try to figure out why why it was, why it felt so wrong that I was going, fuck, <laughs> you know, and then, like I would whisper, I would whisper, fuck. And then I'd listen to it. How, how like, old what? were you when you were doing this? Uh, probably four. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating because my kids are playing around with the, with the word fuck right now. And like, uh, my son came home from school and he had, or I got home from work and I had seen, he had drawn this up 
apology note, uh, apologizing <laughs> to his teacher for writing fuck in the margin of his like math assignment. Uh, but he had like drawn it with like Zelda and like Link kind of standing side by side. And there's this like apology, <laughs> which is totally discordant. But, but yeah, it's, I was, I was way too scared to kind of push into that, but I think it shows like the difference between like the environment that I was growing up in and, and then hopefully the kind of slightly more open airy uh, space in which, in which my son and daughter are, which doesn't have those, the same really hard kind of commandments. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm going through a similar situation where I'm questioning stuff too. Like, um, so me growing up wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, like there was a lot of religious dogma coming from all ends of the spectrum early on. Not so much. All I can remember is that we had, um, a picture of Jesus on the wall. My dad looked a lot like him. Um, you know, he kind of was like a hippie, um, pothead type guy. You're from, and he looked like Santa Cruz, uh, California. So yeah, beach shouldn't be, uh, yeah. Too much of a surprise. So I thought it was a picture of my dad. Um, and, you know, with blood streaming down his face. Um, I know I was interested in the imagery as a kid. It was like, you know, you, you're brought up with this super graphic, bloody corpse looking man, you know, who's being tortured. And it's like, that's, can that's like, you look up to that as the ideal, like to, to the self-sacrificial person, you know, the martyr and, uh, and pain being like this thing that suffering is like the, the ideal, like it's, right, it's, yeah. it's like godlike. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, um, for me, it was more, I was left to my own devices. Like, um, you know, for the most part growing up, my parents were semi absent and the only person that was really around for me to ask questions or ask me questions was my grandmother and my grandpa, but he died when I was really young. Okay. And, um, so it, it was kind of like, I was just thrown into a sink or swim situation and from a really early age. So I needed to do, I needed to figure stuff out. And in order to do that, I simply experimented a lot with things I shouldn't have experimented with. And like, I remember when I was five, like right after my parents got divorced, um, I remember renting the toxic Avenger, um, which was extremely graphic. <laughs> like it's like an NC 17 style, um, movie because of how graphic the violence is and over the top it is. And, um, I convinced my mom to let me rent it, but she's not watching any of the stuff that I'm watching. I'm by myself okay. and I remember watching it and, and that was kind of, that opened the door to like, what else is there? Why can't I see this? What's going on? And I'm sure it was a major shock to the system. Like, I don't think a five-year-old should be watching that sort of stuff. But then, I mean, I, when I was sick, I six, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street part two um, which is probably the scariest of all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. It was more of a serious tone. Um, so I saw a lot of stuff growing up. Um, that and the fact, you know, like when you're little and you're you're kind of a latchkey kid, you you know, in in the in the 80s, you you experience pornography very early. You know, walking on the railroad tracks, you know, there's always porn on the ground. It's it's you just see everything, and then you wonder why you're not supposed to see it, and you wonder what power it has and, and why the, and the hows and whys of everything. And so where did that, where did those, that atmosphere of guilt come from? If, if the, like your parents were fairly kind of removed figures, 
where were those really hard where was that pressure coming from of like not doing something yeah exactly like what was where Uh, was your sense of those things being off limits coming from if there weren't really hard rules being enforced i think it was my my grandma it was just like don't don't look at that okay like i i have i have a very vivid memory of going on a walk with my grandma and my uncle and my cousins and um, there was porn on the ground and she saw it and she ran over to it and she grabbed it, tore it up and threw it in the garbage. And it was like right away. It was like, what? wait, so I, that's really, really bad. I don't know completely what it is. I remember even hearing my uncle and I had to been six and my uncle was saying, like, don't do that. That'll make him more. In, that'll make the kids more interested in what what they're what they're not seeing. Right. right. And uh, but. Yeah, I don't know. There wasn't so my mom wasn't a dogmatic person at all. Yeah. You know, my mom utilized guilt to keep me in line because I was a very, you know, bad kid. Uh, you know, I got in trouble a lot. I was extremely hyperactive and had a lot of learning disabilities that went along with that made me feel kind of like a complete and utter outcast at school. So I tend to act like an outcast. You know, you, you're put in a box and you 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 play the part. Right. And um I got in trouble a great deal, but like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, my mom just was like, you know, be good because you don't want them to think you had a bad mom. Hmm. But I don't know. I think I did. (laughs) Do you think she she was dealing with her own trauma coming out of, coming out of, uh, you know, growing up with, with your grandma's kind of Catholic, dogma or maybe so my, my so my my grandma was the least dogmatic catholic i've ever met um religion was personal to her um she never said she never criticized people who weren't religious my grandfather wasn't he was an atheist and uh and this is something i definitely want to be able to write about in the future was my uh after my grandma my grandpa died my grandma would um take us to church and we would light a candle for him and she would tell me that he's in purgatory and that we need to pray for him to get out of purgatory because he wasn't religious so there was a lot of that and uh, I definitely believed everything my grandma said but I still questioned you know every little bit and piece and I I I did seven years of catechism and I I think right around the time where maybe a year before getting confirmed, I, I finally was like, you know, I can't do this anymore, Mom. I this doesn't feel right. It feels it feels disrespectful for me to do this when I don't believe in what's going on. And um, she was very upset, but in the end, it didn't. There was no issue, and my grandma had no opinion on it at all. It was yeah. she said everybody has their own relationship with God, hmm. and um, you know, as long as people are are genuinely good people, that you know, that's their own thing. And I mean, she was just very. It was. I remember before she died, my um, my wife like kind of asked her, "What do you think heaven's going to be like? Are you going to hang out with you know my grandpa and that sort of stuff too?" And she said, "No, I'm going to sit with God." Okay. That was it. And it was like, really? And she's like, "Yeah."
and it's just I mean she she had her own very very strong beliefs but she seemed to understand that those beliefs were hers right and it was that was her own reality and she just wasn't judgmental like Jesus like the stuff that I was drawing you know to to the point that she died was super harsh and she read it all you know she was my biggest fan and she she understood and um she was just really open-minded very it it was just really cool to to kind of have that example of um a very devout person who wasn't super judgmental and whatever else but my my mother suffered mostly due to my grandfather's he he had pretty severe depression and mental illness and he was in an asylum and that sort of stuff so that's where that comes from. Do you feel like you're carrying on that strand of, of fighting some of those, you know, those aspects of of those kind of mental issues yourself? Oh yeah, I mean, can't get away from that. I, I, um, I think there's, I think it's pretty clear by my work that I'm working through whatever I can and trying to be a healthier person. But uh, yeah, I mean. It runs in the family. Can't can't really get away from it. It's um, I uh, but it's really kind of the one of the reasons why I'm here. Like I simply am not as happy as most people, and it takes more work to stay happy. And so I got really good at the things that make me happy, and those things are being creative and mm. you know, working. And uh, I got really that's how I got good at it. It's just. just in order to stay afloat, like in order to, to, to keep moving along and not, you know, jump off the closest cliff. Like you gotta stay happy. And, uh, I over time have become very efficient at knowing what I need, being realistic about it, and then just continuously doing it. And the more you do something, the better you get at it. And, you know, it kind of led me down this path. Yeah. I mean, you had a deep, deep love for, the Nintendo Entertainment System and 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 those games Super Mario Brothers Two I, I think is 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 one of your favorite games of all time and and Zelda of course like that yeah. gold cartridge like I think for people who grew up like with that console being one of their first big splashes into video games was it's just complete boggled your mind like it might as well have been actual solid gold. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like it's it's interesting because of your darker creative fascination and the fact that you grew up in the arms of these games that were that had that Nintendo they were weird but they were also so incredibly like bright and joyful and yeah. I I was just I was wondering how much of an, an antidote that was for you playing playing those games uh, growing up. I don't know. Like, um, I mean, I loved, I always loved video games, but they were never like, if like throughout my whole life, if you were like, what's your favorite thing? I would probably never say video games. Like it wasn't video games. Weren't a safe haven for me. Um, they were a minor escape and they were something that I did with my friends and I, that I could, they were, a, a a jumping point from like for inspiration. Like, um, the thing I always loved about video games is that especially the early ones, you know, mostly due to technical limitations, they couldn't tell you a story. They could only give you pieces of the story. And those pieces inspired 
tons of creative ideas. So I did a lot. I mean, I was basically doing fan fiction when I was really a little, little kid and mm-hmm. taking characters and, and, you know, trying to think of cool ways to, to put them into my own worlds and that sort of stuff. And I mean, I'm still doing that. Like I'm still basically taking things, video games, concepts that I love and then trying to make them my own. Um, and, uh, but for me, my, you know, my safe haven was music. Like music was, was the, the thing that I was able to escape into. And, uh, um, it just filled me up. Like that was, that was the, that was where I went for, for everything for the most part. What were some of those bands like kind of in your most like vulnerable early stages of falling in love with music? I mean, it had, I mean, it, it was Nirvana by far. Like you can't avoid, like when I was 12, they were just, you know, bubbling up. And then I think by the time I was 14, you know, he had killed himself and that was the end of it. So it was like a really big impactful thing. Um, and, uh, I was really into all the grunge bands and, you know, all that, the whole scene was just phenomenal. And it was such a great time. Like, you know, um, even, uh, like early days of, of Radiohead and, you know, really good smashing pumpkin stuff and yeah, all that stuff was just so great. And it just got me craving music and, you know, you trade cassette tapes with your friends and, oh yeah. I just wanted more and more. It was before the internet. So it's like, all you could do is ask, Hey, what, 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 what bands like this? And then they would be like, Oh, well I'll dub you a cassette tape or whatever. And then, uh, you get to listen to it. I had this one, I, my first copy of bleach was, uh, you could hear my friend Willie and his mother screaming at each other in the background because he didn't have a, a good dub system. So he'd actually oh, take really? two. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> just picked up all the, all the ambience. Yeah. 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 Cause he would just, he would go into his room, turn it up full blast and then record on another, another recorder. Um, and, uh, yeah, you could just hear him fighting in the background, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, it, um, and that continued throughout And I'm, I, I still say music is like my number one, like if I'm feeling shitty or if I'm feeling uninspired or, you know, a lot of it's, it's hard to say, like a lot of the ideas I have come from music, but I can't exactly articulate how. And a lot of the way that I tend to write is very similar to what I learned from the music that I grew up with, like just the structure, the, the way of abstract storytelling, mm-hmm. the tone, um, and even to some degree, the, uh, you know, the, the math that goes into music is pretty similar to like a, a like programming, like you're, oh, yeah. you've got a, a base structure. And you've got a repetition and you've got it, it, it mirrors design in a lot of different ways that I, I tend to gravitate towards. Yeah. It seems like you've always like mood has, has been that tool of communication through drawing, through your childhood monster artwork, through an image. It was almost like a sound. It could like embody an emotion or, or unpack some anxiety or tension um, and, and your games definitely do that as well. Like they don't, they don't rely heavily on this long winded narrative. It's, you know, it's, they'll plug into nostalgia. They'll plug into, you know, certain moments, old video games, uh, sounds, images, and then kind of grind it up and, and feed it through your own kind of unique voice. Yeah. It's the other day, somebody tweeted at me, 
I still don't know if they were joking because it seemed like the most harsh thing in the world. And they were like, it was a screen, it was a screen cap from, um, from one of the endings of the end is nigh. And, uh, and they were like, the thing I love about Edben is he doesn't, he doesn't put any effort into his storytelling. He just says, there's no story here. Move on, play the game. And it's just like, gee, <laughs> like if people knew how much, how much time I spend on oh, thinking about like all the intricacy that goes into how can I convey this feeling, this, you know, how can I set this tone? How can I, how can I put two things together that really talk to each other in a, some sort of eye opening way? Like I, I really try and that's, that's almost sometimes that's more fun to me than the design. You know, it's a different thing. It's a different part of your brain. Like, right. but it's that kind of marriage of, um, I guess, masculine feminine or something, you know, it's the, the yin and yang of, of, of game design for me is like the technical side and then the uh, emotional side, hmm. um, which makes it perfect. Like it's just like music. Yeah, I was, I was in Copenhagen um, back when I was working for Edge magazine. I was interviewing Arndt Jensen, uh, Limbo, the creator of Limbo, and which yeah. is such an incredibly sparse game. It's all about mood. It's all about the gradient of black and white and this yeah. haziness and, and this, again, like yourself, like taking a boy, putting them in an incredibly harsh situation and then just letting you kind of wonder to yourself for five or six hours like you know like what that mood is is connected to and so i was asking him some questions about that and it was clear he he really didn't want to talk about it and eventually he just said look i think the line of questioning i was pursuing was kind of talking about the sparseness of the of the narrative and and how open it was to interpretation and then comparing that to a game like mass effect that has like hundreds of millions of words in it and just everything is like you know sprawling you know out in terms of spelling out the story and uh yeah he said you know if i'd known we were going to get onto the subject of of religion then i wouldn't have agreed to this interview but it was clear it just pricked something very profound it was so personal to him and you know of course yeah, yeah i respect that but it's a it's amazing how much he felt like he was saying in that game, even though there's, there's no dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's so much more you can convey from an experience than it's like, it's the difference between somebody telling you what to think and you experiencing it. Like mm-hmm. it's such a vastly different thing. Like you can, you can, understand a story or, or how powerful, you know, loss is or whatever else from, from a story and, you know, how well you kind of paint this picture for, for people, but actually experiencing it. And it kind of like opens up little pieces of your brain and it opens up your past. It's like all these different connections kind of abstractly. And then you fill in the gaps and, and it becomes more personal because you're experiencing it. Like you're, um, you're, you're solving the problems and then you, the solutions are kind of coming through and those solutions are combining, you know, the themes of all these things are coming together. Um, I don't know. It just always feels like such more of a, a powerful experience, even then, you know, than a movie. I mean, I, I feel like there's video games are really difficult to make like yeah. um, good, good video games anyway. Like, you know, a well put together video game is, is super complicated and it takes so much work and it takes, 
every medium artistic medium that there is for the most part you have to explore every aspect it's it takes everything that it takes to make a movie except so much more <laughs> like yeah, yeah. it's it's not just editing it's like and a lot of people make games like they make movies and there's there's no nothing wrong about that but for me like exploring storytelling through experience and um the game's design and having this kind of like what's the word like this system in place where everything's talking to each other not just technically but emotionally and um you know visually every every everything has has substance and meaning you're creating this world that's a living world and you're 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 kind of painting all these little these little pictures of it's like a it's like a fragment it's like you meet somebody on the street and you don't know anything about their past you don't know who the hell they are um and you have a run-in with them again and then they they say oh you know i picked up my mom from chemotherapy or whatever and you're like oh shit you know i've got this piece of this person yeah. you know i I'm, I'm understanding this and then you kind of extrapolate this life of you know your basic knowledge of, of who this person is just from this little bit and piece and like i don't know there's something to just giving people little fragments of stuff and then letting them letting their their life kind of their their personal experience fill in the gaps and yeah. uh I don't know. It's it's just more interesting to me than traditional storytelling. Even though I know traditional storytelling is what what gets shit sold. <laughs> well, after you released the Binding of Isaac, did did you find that people were approaching you who had come up in more extreme fundamentalist kind of Christian homes and and wanting to talk to you about that? Uh, or identifying with some aspect of the relationship between the child and the game and its mother who, um, you know, basically comes into the room with a butcher knife after hearing, you know, a word from God while watching, like, you know, Christian Broadcasting Network or something. I, I thought that I thought that more people would. But, like, in the, in the beginning, like, right when I released it and there was more of a um, – more bubbling, more people talking about, you know – what, what, what it might be about or, or whatever else, like, like once like rebirth came out, once it became, it's, it's funny because I've talked about this with Mario where nobody questions the themes of Mario. No one, no one even sees like the drug stuff. No one even sees the, the obvious Alice in Wonderland type themes that are going on there. Oh, yeah. And, um, they just think it's just weird, Japanese video games, you know what I mean? And then it's like the po more popular it gets, the further away you, you, you become like it, you know, when questions like, you know, this monster that's capturing this woman and, you know, even like Bowser Jr. How'd that happen? Like what's happening behind the scenes? Like, yeah, yeah. it's just a bunch, a bunch of, you don't, you don't question any of any of those things. And with Isaac, it's the same thing happened. Like the more popular it got, the less people talked about the themes. Isaac and his mother lived alone in a small house on a hill. Isaac kept to himself, drawing pictures and playing with his toys as his mom watched Christian broadcasts on the television. Life was simple, and they were both happy. That was until the day Isaac's mom heard a voice from above. Your son has become corrupted by sin. He needs to be saved. I will do my best to save him, my lord, Isaac's mother replied. 
rushing into Isaac's room, removing all that was evil from his life. Again, the voice called to her. Isaac's soul is still corrupt. He needs to be cut off from all that is evil in this world and confess his sins. I will follow your instructions, Lord. I have faith in thee, Isaac's mother replied as she locked Isaac in his room away from the evils of the world. One last time, Isaac's mom heard the voice of God calling to her. You've done as I've asked, but I still question your devotion to me to prove your faith. I will ask one more thing of you. Yes, Lord, anything, Isaac's mother begged. To prove your love and devotion, I require a sacrifice. Your son, Isaac, will be this sacrifice. Go into his room and end his life as an offering to me to prove you love me above all else. Yes, Lord, she replied, grabbing a butcher's knife from the kitchen. Isaac, watching through a crack in his door, trembled in fear. Scrambling around his room to find a hiding place, he noticed a trap door to the basement hidden under his rug. Without hesitation, he flung open the hatch, just as his mother burst through his door and threw himself down into the unknown depths below. I don't know. I, I, I firmly believe that basically any any video game designer out there who's designing something um, uh, in a small team – like one 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 major uh, uh, idea person who's kind of pushing pushing their themes and whatever else and kind of controlling this this whole thing that's happening. There's no way for that person, no matter if they think they're an artist or not, to not subconsciously create an artistic piece that's personal. Like I think it's utterly impossible hmm. because they're only pulling from their own personal experience. I have a close friend who's releasing a game soon. Um, and him and I were, were talking the other day about the themes in his – I just brought up some of the themes in his games. And I was like, you know, I always – when you're working on it, I was always thinking since I know him and I know what he's been through, like, this is what you're talking about. And he kind of was like, oh, I never even – I never even thought about that. Huh. Like, it's just impossible not to. Like, you can't not. You can't not subconsciously bring in significant things, you know, your your worries – your hangups, the things that you love, like all those things, it's, it's all going to come in abstractly through whatever you're focusing on. You know, the more people that get their hands in it and the more focused on success and, and money and whatever else, it's going to get watered down into a movie. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's going to be this, it's going to be this other thing, but like, that's the beauty of, of, uh, most independent studios is you kind of come through with this narrative or, or over, overarching theme that kind of represents the person who's making it. And it's something that not everybody's going to pick up on unless you know the person. And I've been lucky enough to, to, to know a lot of game designers, like, you know, knowing John Blow, I, yeah. I, I have this, I feel like I know what his games are about. And, you know, like even Derek, you or, or, um, Kyle Gabler who made world of goo and, um, uh, Shit, I forgot what the burning game was, where you burn everything in the fireplace. Um, having met him, it's just like 
all of his games ooze him. Like it's just him. Like it's just who he is. It's, um, and that's just so cool. And, um, I don't think, I don't think designers can really help it. You described Isaac as being basically a, a fuck you to the, to the world. Uh, it reminded me of Brett Easton Ellis, um, quote he basically said the same thing about the book american psycho that he was just so done and this like tidal wave of of kind of anger and frustrations and it just kind of poured out of him under the page in the in the form of that incredibly like disturbing but fascinating book uh talk to me about that experience that incredibly intense three-month kind of creative giving giving birth to isaac that game it was a it was a very interesting experience it was a scary experience it was the only and i've made some fucking wacky games you know i made a game called cunt and uh by today's standards i would be the devil if i re-released that you know like it i've released some very punk fuck you to everybody type games that were mostly set there to be a reminder to me personally, that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I didn't have to answer to anybody like that. I was an artist that I didn't need to, if I wanted to, I didn't have to think about anybody else and I could just make something for the sake of making it and not think about anything else. Just, just make it personal regardless of the content and let it sit. And, uh, the binding of Isaac was, was definitely like my rebound off of, I don't, I don't know maybe the issues that I had with super meat boy development, like the restrictive aspects, the, 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 uh, how soft it, like it was a very accessible game. Um, it, it was my Mario, like, even though, you know, it still has got the weird themes that make it what it is, but it was still happy. (laughs) Like it was the happiest thing that I ever made. It was bright. Um, even though it wasn't super bright, but you know what I mean? Like it was, was, I was trying my best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have the dark world, but yeah, but for the most part, it was happy go lucky. And it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a a funny take on, on, you know, the, the suffering man, you know, being, being constantly smashed forever. But jumping um, is like inherently happy. That's just the nature of like jumping and and having so little gravity kind of holding you to the earth. Like, you were a superhero. You could, you, yeah. you still felt powerful, yeah. you know, even though you were so weak, but, uh, yeah, there, there was something about that. Like I, I had success with it and it felt great to have success, but there was something, there was something about that experience that made me feel like I, it wasn't completely on my terms. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I can't really put it into words. I just, afterwards I, I've told the story many times, but yeah, basically once we were completely finished, um, Tommy had taken a vacation with, um, um, or he was going to take a vacation with his then girlfriend. And, uh, uh, I, I have issues with traveling. Um, not so much now, but I, I did back then a lot. And, uh, uh, I mean, I felt envious of, of the situation, the ability to just pick up and, and do something that would be relaxing or fun. I definitely envy people who are able to do that easily. And I've always struggled with it, but I, I really wanted to, after that experience, I wanted to do something relaxing and fun for me. And I, you know, tried my best to just be honest with myself about what that was, 
you know, well, you know, was I going to force myself into a situation where I'm going to feel riddled with anxiety if I go take a trip somewhere? You know, it's not, it just doesn't seem relaxing to me. So it's like, okay, well, what would be relaxing? And my first thought was, you know, I want to make a game. Like I want to make another game, but I want to make it like I used to make games. Um, I want to make it, make it in a, I was supposed to be a week. (laughs) I was going to make it in a week. Um, I was just going to make this fun little weird, dark, twisted thing. And I was going to be really honest with it. And it was going to be brutal, but fun. And, you know, just these general ideas of like, I just want to be unbridled. And I want to shout to the world, you know, even though I sold out, I still can do whatever I want. You know, basically, I want to I want to I want to say like, hey, look it. I worked hard and now I have enough financial stability to say, fuck you really loud and not care what the repercussions were. And, um, that eventually became that, like it was, you know, I, I buddied back up with one of the few programmers that I've worked with who was up for anything. Like Florian was up for anything. He, he was down with, I could, I could go nuts and he would be like, yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. And, uh, and Isaac was, was, was that experience. Like it was, you know, I want to make something personal. I want to make something that originally kind of started out as a criticism of, of religion and, and kind of what it feels like to feel like an outcast already. And then, you know, you've got examples in the Bible where it's like, okay, you've got good and evil and evils like this and goods like this. And I don't really align with good so much, you know, like I, I don't know. It was, um, it was kind of reveling in the darkness, but also, you know, <laughs> maybe like a sympathy for the devil type story. Um, but in the end, it was kind of like what what happens to a creative kid who feels like an utter outcast, who already is an outcast. You know, you're growing up and you're you already feel like you don't belong anywhere. Like you don't, and um, and then you've got this belief system that a huge majority of people are subscribing to that basically says on top of the fact you being an outcast, you're also an outcast in a biblical sense. Right, <laughs> like, you're evil. You're it's, quite literally. Yeah. Sort of- and, uh, so, so yeah, it was like for, for me growing up, I felt, you know, for lack of a better word, I felt evil. Um, I felt like, you know, the opposite of whatever, you know, a lot of people in my family were, especially on my dad's side who are born again, Christian and, um, I was made to feel evil when I was around them. The things I liked were evil and the, and the things I drew were evil and so on and so forth. Um, and I reveled in it and I used that as like, uh, an identity that pushed me forward. But at the same time, I could easily see how that same thing would crush somebody else like completely, um, and make them feel powerless and make them feel like, you know, what's the point? You know, I might as well do what bad people do you know? Um, and that was kind of where it started. And it was more of, it was definitely more of a criticism when I started out. Um, and then as I went, it became more of like, a, you know, my eyes kind of opened to the situation and I realized how much inspiration I pulled from the creativity behind Catholicism, you know, the ritualistic aspect, you know, the, there's just so much there. Like, the stories are so interesting and so over the top. And, uh, I, I can't deny the fact that growing up, you know, in a Catholic 
household with all, you know, with revelations that I don't know how many times I've heard my grandma and my mom say, Oh, it's the end times. It's sign of the times, you know? Yeah. So, you know, Oh, maybe the, what is, does this represent the six, 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 you know, right. what, what's, when's the devil coming? And, uh, you know, growing up with that, uh, it was just, <laughs> I guess, exciting for lack of a better word. Like, you know, the, the idea that there was, it was kind of like believing in ghosts, you know, there, it was the idea that there was, yeah. my life was much more interesting as a kid because I believed in aliens. I believed in ghosts. <laughs> I believed in demonic possession. I believed in all this stuff. And you, you grow up and you kind of lose, you lose a lot of those fears. And, and with losing those fears, you lose a lot of creativity and you lose a lot of mystery. And, um, I mean, I still, to this day, I'll look at like stupid YouTube videos where it's like new, new, uh, new crypto creature found and it's like some <laughs> bullshit video or whatever, but it's like, I still want it. You know, I still, I'm still so desperate for there to be something more. Huh. Um, but you know, as I grew up, I, I, the doors closed and, um, but I definitely am, I guess I'm grateful in some weird sadistic way that I had those things because they, they were inspiring creatively and, um, they were able to keep me in that, headspace for a very long time as a kid and I can still go back there. What else should I be? your mother at the at the end of that game and this big gnarly kind of varicose veins and like (laughs) crazy like cankle sort of leg is like stomping down and into the dungeon on top of you uh and there are people who play that game and and like have so much kind of anxiety from their own kind of conflicted relationships with their own sort of overbearing kind of parents and or mother specifically. And, and all of a sudden that scene is like so much bigger. Yeah. I, I remember in the beginning people would always be like, Oh, you know, you must hate your mom and uh, your mom must've been horrible. And, I, it's it's weird. I, I'm still conflicted because I don't know how much of that is actually true or how much of that I pulled from other aspects. Because the, Isaac was one of the first games where I was I was writing about myself abstractly 
Um, but I was also writing about my dad and his experience, um, which was a million times worse than mine. And, um, so I can't really relate to the overbearing mother cause I had, I did not have an overbearing mother. Yeah. You know, I had mostly an absence mother. Um, I, but I can understand enough of it through my father's experience and that sort of stuff. Like he was just another outcast in a family of outcasts. Um, and, uh, he endured some serious abuse and, uh, um, I was kind of able to, and he's, I mean, it, it also, he, it was easier for me to write about that sort of stuff because I was also writing about, you know, my experience through his family, like his the McMillan side of the family were harsh, really harsh. And they were the type of people that, uh, were very religious because of what they had done. Uh, they, they were atoning for something. Yes, for sure. And I've heard stories, but it's like, you kind of get that unsettling. I don't know. I've always been a very, I guess, super empathetic person. And I could, uh, if there was just an air of, uh, awfulness, <laughs> there was just this, this uncomfortableness, um, where everybody was kind of putting on a happy face feeling like going over there and stuff. And, uh, it was just very disturbing to me. Um, and I had a difficult time going there, going to the McMillan side of the family for, for, uh, like Christmas or, or Thanksgiving or whatever else. It just felt really yucky hmm. and everybody felt like they were just putting on a happy face sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I was, I was able to kind of pull, pull a lot from, from what I'd heard and from my, my, my dad had told me and from what I had seen growing up, uh, when it comes to just kind of these seemingly pious people, who weren't exactly who are, who are, who are pious now because they, uh, they feel so bad about what they have done. Yeah. I do. I do wonder about that generation before us that didn't have that outlet to, to open up about those traumatic experiences. And, and so I, I do wonder like how many secrets will die with, with my parents, you know, and I suppose everybody has, has various secrets, but, like there's more opportunity for us to be open about them and talk about some of that trauma yeah. in our generation. Um, and I really like, it pains me that my parents wouldn't feel like they could open up about some of that. Yeah. It's, it's, it is weird. Like there are so many things that I learned even like from my mother and stuff that I wish that I had, she had told me when I was younger because I could have learned from her experience and, um, she just kind of kept my mom, my mom was the type of person who <clears throat> just wanted to appear like she, like she was naive or, or whatever else. So she just simply wouldn't, if I asked her questions that were difficult, she would just give me the basic answer. Wouldn't tell me the truth. And, um, I had suffered, you know, a lot of different things that later she would tell me, oh yeah, I went through that when I was young and, you know, this is what I did and so on and so forth. And there was just so many family secrets 
And I definitely think you're right. Like, I think that is a generational thing where you just don't talk about that sort of stuff, even though it would be really helpful. I'm just, I'm big on honesty. And I think that's, we're kind of, I mean, as, as a society right now, I feel like we're, we're, we have definitely been leaning towards honesty, but now we're leaning really far away from it. It's like, it's this kind of, um, I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's kind of this, like, uh, people don't, don't tell somebody your actual feelings cause you'll hurt their feelings, even though it's honest, if that makes sense. There's this kind of like, well, just lie to make somebody feel better. Um, you know, I don't know. It's this, just like this air of lying. Like everybody wants to lie to, to, to make it better. Um, and when you see some somebody as repugnant as like Donald Trump kind of airing all of his his kind of condescension and, and bitterness, you know, towards poor people and uh, you know people of color, and like, is that honesty? Like, he is being honest, uh, and it's it's strange to see some people see that as some kind of badge of honor of that he's he's transparent with all of that, but it, it still feels so cancerous. Yeah. And it, and that's, I mean, that's why it's even shittier. Like it's, there are so many things that make speaking your mind. Um, like he's fucking everything up more <laughs> than, than he, than we even realized because he's, he's kind of making it so like, okay, so I want to live in a world. So it's idiotic to think that we're ever going to live in a world where people aren't, racist or have some issue with some general generalization of, you know, a, a sex, a gender, um, a, a sexual preference or anything like that. That's stupid. It's stupid to think that we're ever going to be in a place where, some, where there are people that aren't like that. I would much rather those people be waving a flag around so I know who they are than in a world where there are people who are simply secretly doing it. And that's like, that's where I sit. And it's like, it's, it's much easier as a society to you know, growing up like with, with Jerry Springer and having the KKK on, it's like, there's a real, it's like a real easy to, Hey, there he is. The guy who's fucking dressed like a KKK member. He's the, he's the KKK. He's the racist. Like exactly. this is the guy who will do something illegal to hurt somebody else because they simply don't like something about them. Yeah. You know, it's just so much better when you can identify those people. And I, and I feel like there are dangers in society where it's just like, once people know the lingo, they can just hide in the shadows and they can be the fucked up person that they are. Um, but they'll just play by the rules and make sure that they say all the right things. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I, um, I, I, it's just there. People aren't all one dimensional. And I feel like we're edging towards this era of the one dimensional person who's summed up by their political affiliation, which I think is shitty. And it's like, you know, I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm a Democrat, obviously I'm a very liberal, liberal, liberal person. Um, and when I was younger, I thought I was extremely liberal, but no, I'm, I, I'm at a point now where I'm sitting almost in the middle compared to everybody else who's on the left. It's like, they're so far over there that I don't even know what's going on anymore. But, um, I'm, I'm a democratic, I'm a Democrat and I vote, I vote Democrat. And, um, I have many people in my family that are Republican and um, I have people in my family who voted Trump and I don't think those people are racist. In fact, I know they're not. And 
there's just a lot of it's just like this generalization. It's really easy to be like, oh, yeah, everybody who voted for Trump is a fucking idiot who is a racist and so on and so forth. That's easy to do. And that makes everything worse because it splits us so much more drastically because, you know, if you're on the other side and then you hear a bunch of people saying, well, if you did this, then you're this. They're like, well, fuck you then. Then I'm definitely this. Like I'm definitely over here and you're way, way, way over there and you get further and further and further apart. But um, I don't know. There's just this middle ground of realizing that everybody has a reason for what they do and it's never going to be boiled down to a simple bad person. You know, you're simply a bad person. And it's such a dangerous thing for us to be edging towards that. It's like the idea, like, um, it was years ago, but now it'd be much worse. Um, so Hotline Miami came out and there was a rape scene in it. And, um, it was super controversial. It still boggles the mind that it is because the game's about fucking murdering people. But anyway, so everybody was talking about this rape scene and, um, I did an interview and I was like, defending rape in a video game it just seems so stupid like i have to be this guy like i have to be the guy like i get it you know rape's fucking bad it's horrible and people who've experienced it can be definitely triggered by a rape scene in a video game and you know i get it but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a rape scene in something you you can't take away a, a human experience um from art in any form simply because it's bad like it's just goes against everything that expression um, and freedom to say and do whatever. It's like, I don't know. It's just this weird controlling thing. And I hated to be that fucking guy who's defending this. And it's like, it was the same thing with like a super column by massacre. I was one of the people that, um, uh, that left, it was this thing called, um, shit, what was it called? Slam dance. And I was one of the people who, um, had entered my game in slam dance and then super column by massacre was part of it. And there was a protest and they removed Super Call by Massacre from 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 being considered for an award. And I was one of the people who was like, well, then fine, I don't want to be a part of this. Like, you can't do that. Like, I, I get it. It's probably it's it's it may paint these kids in a in a light that people aren't OK with. But you can't do that. Like, You just simply can't remove something just because it's I don't know. You, or at least say from the beginning, like, listen. These are our morals. These are our standards. And don't enter your games unless you fit into this criteria. Um, I don't know. But I hate being that person. I hate being that person who's like defending some asshole racist, you know, like I'm I defend the people who say God hates fags because they have a right to fucking put their stupid fucking signs up and say dumb shit. It's important. It's just important that everybody is able to say it because then they look like stupid dumb shits holding stupid fucking signs. And then you know who those people are. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's the same thing like what we were talking about before where you, when you say something's bad and you don't explain why and you don't let that thing happen, then there's going to be people who go and explore that thing because they simply want to know why it's bad. Hmm. And like, it's, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like an, I feel like a complete alien. I get scared sometimes to go on Twitter and say anything because then I get bombarded with, you know, I'm a, I'm a hateful person. I don't even know what I fucking said. I don't know what I did. I don't know what I <laughs> retweeted. And it's just like, I, do you feel, do you feel a chilling effect within, within the video game industry? Like in, in terms of that kind of wide open, 
kind of every anything is on the table in terms of like creative expression. Do, does it get into your head when you're creating? Yeah, I mean, it has in the past. Like when I was, it's funny because it's polar opposite. But when I was releasing the Binding of Isaac, even my wife was scared for our safety because we were afraid we were going to upset religious extremists and that they were going to hurt me in some way. You know, I don't know. Like, um, I guess it's the same sort of fears of like the people who, you know, do comics with Muhammad in them and stuff like that. It's like you, you have, you have fears of, of, of saying and doing, you criticize anything and kicking the beehive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like religions tend to have the most extreme people. And, you know, when you, when you're dealing with like a super fantastical idea and you're taking the concept of an afterlife and, you know, it, it just really makes perfect sense. Like it's, I, I'm a firm believer that the majority of people who say that they're religious don't actually believe in the religions that they're, that they're practicing. Because if you did, you would be like the people that did 9-11. You'd be doing that shit because you'd be believing it. And in the same way, like, and that's kind of what I was exploring with Isaac and his mom. It's like, no one believes that some woman, you know, in middle America who killed her kids, heard the voice of God telling her to do it. They think, oh, he's fucking nuts. Like, but wait, you're all reading a book that says that that happens. Why don't you believe it? Right. Like no one, no one believes it. And it's like, I, I, I just feel like it's just another, <laughs> another one of those. Let's all agree that we, uh, we all believe this, but we kind of don't. We'll see. Like, we'll see when we get there. We'll see what happens. But just in case, you know, let's do a few prayers and, uh, cover our asses a little bit and, you know, see what happens when we come out the other side. And, uh, I think that that's where we are. Like I, I there are times where I, I, I stay up at night thinking like, how cool would it be to do a Kickstarter where it's a lie detector Kickstarter where you get a bunch of devout, like a bunch of questions, of course, you'd get these hard hitting questions and you'd ask them, do you really believe this? Do you really believe? And then you have this general idea of what society actually believes as opposed to what they're lying about. Like, I don't know. It seems interesting to me, but it might be my own. (laughs) I want to, I want to know what people really think. I really do. I like, I genuinely, I get off on honesty and people being genuine. I respect people who are being genuine, even if they're fucked up. You know, like even if their ideas are totally insane. Like I have, I've had friends who, who don't believe in evolution. I've had f- like flat earther type friends. And it's just like, I, I of course have this asshole tendency to be like, well, you're a fucking idiot. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, here, here, I'll map it out for you. This is how it works. And it's, yeah. but, but I also really want to know why. I, I really want to know why. And I really want to understand what gets them believing that in the same way, you know, I, you know, if somebody, somebody's a, a racist asshole, I'm much more interested in what got them there than judging them and calling them an evil person. Do you want the, the games that you make and if you retire from games one day and, and you know, keep drawing, creating other kinds of art, do you think of it as something that you want to use to to change change the world around? No. No. I don't think No, that is a that would be a, that's too much pressure. 
<laughs> that is a, or, it cheapen, that is a hopeless... or it cheapens the thing because then it's become a, a tool or like a crowbar or a spade. I don't. Yeah, like I'm. I'm in this for me. I'm into this for my own peace of mind. Like I'm I'm never going to talk about anything more than my own personal shit. Like I'm limited to this. Like to me. Art is honesty, and I can only be honest about what I've personally experienced. I'm never going to write some story, you know, about being a hero in a war, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I don't know what that means, you know? I don't – I'm never going to, you know, write a story about a race car driver. I'm never going to write a story from a woman's perspective, you know? I I don't have that. I don't know what that means. I'm only – I'm limited to my own personal experience, and I would never do something that felt dishonest. And I'm not an actor and that's all you're going to get. I mean, eventually it's probably going to get pretty tired. And for me, I look at my work and I go, ah, shit, same story, different day. Like (laughs) everything I do is just another take on, you know, me reliving my childhood in some new abstract way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, eventually people are going to be like, Oh, here we go again. It's the same old shit. Um, and that, you know, hopefully I'll retire around that time. <laughs> but, uh, you, thre- you, thre- you threaten to occasionally. But I, uh, has to at some point, I suppose. Eventually. But I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still living. I'm still living life. I'm still, you know, as we talked earlier, like I have a baby and that's a whole other experience. And I'm sure as she grows up that will, uh, I'll probably start writing about that experience in some weird way. I mean, the end is nigh was basically inspired by me questioning what future I have now and what's more important and where my values actually sit and why I'm doing this and uh um you know what what's in it for me sort of thing so who knows I mean I I'm definitely I never said I was going to do it forever and I probably won't and uh we'll see what happens but for now I've got a few more ideas that I want to explore and um We'll see what happens. daughter's name is peach yeah her name is her name is technically pj just in case like we we talked about a bunch of different names and uh me and my wife both loved the name peach not necessarily from because of the video game princess but um it was just a really cool name that we liked and uh uh one of the one of the sets of names was like peach jubilee um Peach Jubilee Dawn McMillan is her full name, but technically on paper, her name is PJ Dawn McMillan. Um, and the, the PJ is just a P and a J. Um, because I know I have a lot of friends who've changed their names and end up hating their names and whatever else. So just in case she hates her name, she can, instead of legally changing her name, which is a pain in the ass, she can just say that her name's a different P name or a, go by a J name or just call herself PJ. Or I mean, I call her P a lot. Um, so I don't know. It's just like a, 
a more of a variable. You just do, just go go with what. Like Don and Jubilee and Peach, these are like the most optimistic, open-hearted <laughs> names I can imagine. It's like freedom and like new light and like that's. Oh, she is that. I mean, she's 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 a life-changing. We waited for her. Like we've we've been together for eighteen years, and wow. we waited a long time for this. And it was just one of those situations where this felt like the we were finally responsible enough to do this. And um, you're never ready. People always said that you're never ready. But I'm learning as I go, and it's been a really great, rewarding experience. That the only scary aspect is that it means more to me than making games. What, what so, has she taught you? What has she taught me? Yeah. That, you know, life only lasts so long. Um, and that, you know, I kind of feel like I get to undo, I get to, to, to see what would happen if I was born into a situation that wasn't so messed up. And hopefully she won't have to, you know, everybody suffers, but hopefully she won't have to suffer through the same sort of stuff that I kind of went to. So it feels like you're kind of getting a do over, Mm. um, you know, giving her an environment that's more stable than, you know, the one you grew up in and, uh, kind of seeing what happens. It just, it feels like I'm alive. I mean, it it really, it it does give more, you, you feel like you're living a real life now, not just like coasting through there's a there's permanence there now like she sticks around after i'm gone and then whatever she does will stick around um that sort of stuff it's it's a weird weird thing to think about but it's also kind of a really deep co-op game that i get to play with my wife for forever (laughs) (laughs) we we play a lot of overwatch and it's It's a lot harder than that, uh, uh, a lot more in depth, and uh, it has some major ups and downs. But it's just, it's a cool, it's a really cool thing, and it's it's just not something that I recommend everybody jump into, especially early on, um, and making sure you're the person, the partner that you chose is going to be. You don't want to throw a kid into a shitty situation, basically. So make sure you know what you're doing before you do it. Yeah, a good friend of mine, Josh, who was the editor for the magazine I, I started out writing for, but his, when his son was, was really young, when they would be doing like bedtime stories or something, anytime his son would, instead of saying tomorrow, he would say, uh, when the world starts over, like when the world starts over, we're going to, you know, do this or that. And, and, and I love that idea of like seeing a kid's perspective. Like every day is just another act of reincarnation. Um, yeah. And I think, generations can feel like that as well that it's like an act of reincarnation to try to maybe push this whole human thing like just in a slightly better direction maybe just two inches um so that's what i hope i do with my kids and maybe give them a little bit less stress and kind of anxiety around who they are and and tell them that they're not uh they're not filled with sin but they're like yeah. filled with possibility it'll definitely be an exercise in like nature versus nurture for sure and we'll get to clearly see that um right away <laughs> yeah. i love that instant feedback of kids you know it's like it comes back at you so fast 
Good and bad. But uh, Edmund, thank you so much for for the time. Uh, really generous to to join me for you know just to have a have a nice in depth chat. Like really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. If you enjoyed the topics we covered in this episode, head over to my website at jason-killingsworth.com where you will find lots more content to check out. While you're on my page, be sure to sign up for my newsletter so you don't miss the latest articles and videos I'll be posting there in the days to come. There are links in the upper right corner to my various social media accounts if you want to hit me up directly. The theme music in this episode has been Morning Flats by the band Limbic System. And if you're looking them up online, just keep in mind that their name has a bunch of Y's in it, like Leonard Skinner. Okay, that's it for now. Till next time, stay curious, keep making that thing you're convinced the world will despise you for, and try to be a bit more patient with yourself. Because as the proverb reminds us, be happy while you're living, fear a long time dead. Take care. <laughs>